Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Story Smack. Hello, my name is A. Kovacs, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, best-selling novelist. And I got a number. How do you like them apples? And this is episode 31 of Story Smack, a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. In this episode, we're talking about the 20th anniversary of a film that launched two major acting careers and won a pair of Academy Awards, Goodwill Hunting. We are recording this episode on December 5th, 2017, and Goodwill Hunting came out December 5th, 1997. So we are 20 years to the day from when this bad boy came out. How's that for solving your pretentious blackboard math equation, Chief? Equation? I mean, that's, well, I mean, that's just basic math. Yes. Like I said, it's a pretentious equation. And I solved it. Uh, you uh, aren't that good at math. Uh, I do know words. You do know I know words. all the words. Well, as long as we're on the subject of numbers, let's get those out of the way for this movie. Goodwill Hunting was made on a budget of $10 million. It did $138 million domestic in the U.S., of course, domestic U.S., mm-hmm, and another $87 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $225 million. Now, if you combine that with being nominated for nine Academy Awards, winning two uh, for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, which is Robin Williams, and Best Writing for Original Screenplay, you have a blockbuster success, huge beyond anybody's expectations of this movie. Well, you know, FDO, I know you love the things that we might not know segment of this show, but I have one that's common knowledge and yet maybe people won't know it. A thing you might, a thing we might not know, you are treading on thin ice, my pedigree chum. Well, then I will make this quick. Matt Damon, then 27 years old, and Ben Affleck, who was 25, Mm -hmm. wrote the screenplay for which they won that Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Now, you're a big, uh, big fan of Kevin Smith back in the day, and you've mm-hmm. told me a little bit about this. So why don't you share with the audience your this uh, the story, at least as you claim it to be true. Well, Hopefully I will, it's not fake news. Yeah, I will tell you what I have heard at it, Kevin Smith, An Evening with Kevin Smith. He still does these. I think they might be called uh, Jay and Silent Bob Get Old Now. But okay. when he first uh, started to just do Q&A evenings or talk evenings, uh, I went up to a handful of those uh, in LA, mm-hmm. and um, he told this story at one of them, and it's made the rounds. You'll I'm sure people will be somewhat familiar, but um, at the time that Kevin Smith, I think, was working on Mallrats, mm-hmm. Castle Rock was a, a, a production company, a movie company, and they had purchased the screenplay to Goodwill Hunting. And they kind of stalled because Matt and and Matt and Ben, my good pals Matt and yeah. Ben, wanted to direct it, and they were like, "Yeah, okay. One, you're uh, you're you're very pretty. Two, you're actors." So we're not also going to let you direct your first movie. And okay. They were like, okay. So he was, uh, Ben Affleck was wearing on Mallrats and he kept going out to, which was being filmed on the East Coast and he kept going out to LA mm-hmm. to have meetings and try and get Castle Rock to budge. And finally Castle Rock said, dudes, yeah, I can't, we can't do this. We're not doing this. So either we bought it from you, we have all the rights to it, we're just going to direct our own movie, but we'll give you a little time if you want to sell it to somebody else. If you can find somebody to, to buy it oh, from interesting. us. So he kept having to leave the uh-huh. set. I think it was of Mallrats. And every time he did, he asked 
uh, Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier, who's a producer, can I go? And they would look at the production schedule and say, sure, no problem. You're not on shooting tomorrow. Just be back in time. And he would. And he would always leave a thank you note. Mm-hmm. He would write a thank you note every single time. Like, thank you for letting me go do this. Finally, um, Castle Rock made that pitch and Ben Affleck and Matt Damon came to Kevin Smith and said, please direct this. And he ah. read the script and he was like, yeah, that's awesome. I think I should do this, but yeah, I'm not fucking this up for okay. you. But I will give it. But, meaning he didn't think it was his style of movie? Is that yeah. What it was? I mean, he Kevin thinks Smith didn't think so. Yeah. He said, so the, the legend goes, he said he thought it was way too beautiful for somebody like him to direct. Okay. Uh, but he would give it to Harvey Weinstein. And he did that. So Harvey, no, this, I'm not as educated as you understand. Harvey Weinstein was not part of Castle Rock at this time. No, Car- Harvey and his brother owned Miramax at Miramax, the time, okay. which then they sold because of licensing rights and now became the Weinstein Company, which is what before this year would have been Miramax. Now I think all of that is changing. However, okay. back in the day, it was Miramax. And uh, so Harvey Weinstein read it, bought mm-hmm. it, and the rest, they say, is history. They, he also, they- So he bought uh, it away from Castle Rock. He bought it away from Castle Rock, which was Castle Rock's uh, agreement with them. Uh-huh. And then also didn't let Ben and Matt direct Imagine it like that. they wanted yeah. to. But at that point, they had a lot more buy-in and they had a lot more control. And they also were friends with Kevin Smith. And they knew Kevin had a lot of control on his movies, of course. So mm. it went on to the accolades that it got, having, having been made by Miramax. Uh, such the whole thing is kind of amazing. It's such all in all, this is really a Hollywood uh, fairy tale with what happened for Ben and uh, Matt in this. But in retrospect, considering Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein's abhorrent behavior lately and uh, subsequent fall from grace and all the things we've been seeing in the news lately, with, does his involvement in this movie at all tarnish the movie's history or legacy, if you will. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's something that we're going to have to discuss these days. Do, can you ever watch, an, can you watch uh, the usual suspects anymore without realizing that Kaiser Soze is Kevin Spacey is Kaiser right, Soze? I forgot. I never thought about you know, that it's, one. That's it's true. a thing we're going to have to define as a culture, I think. Yeah. Um, but I would say for me personally, yeah, yes, it does. It, it does. It doesn't mean for me, I don't live in a, uh, I guess maybe I'm trying real hard not to live in a black and white world. There are Mm -hmm. some things that are absolutely unforgivable. Mm -hmm. But then I also know how hard it is. We try so hard. We work so hard to get our, your IP sort of moved into the AV world. Right. So it's really hard for me to dismiss the fact that Goodwill Hunting probably had 500 people on its staff. Yeah. And like, if we are lucky enough to have one of our shows picked up or a movie made one of my books, we have no idea. We can't do background checks on people. We have no idea what these people well, are doing, no, particularly we, outsiders coming into the into the environment. We don't know what's happening. Yeah, and I'm sure we could do background checks on all of them, but I'm sure that this sort of stuff doesn't come up until Might it not comes be up. The best way to start off a business partnership. Can I, I mean, get your Can I get your credit history and the last fifteen people you've dated, sir? Except that's yeah. I mean, the or fifteen ma'am. people, sir or ma'am. The fifteen people part. No, but I mean that is exactly how every corporate job starts. I need a piece of your hair for drug testing, mm. and or you know whatever, and I need your credit history. I need your. I need to talk to your former employees. That sort of thing that does happen all the time. That right, said, right. I think it's a bigger just all here. It's a bigger issue because it's hundred. It's you know it's hundreds and hundreds of properties affected. And this is weird because we've talked on various iterations of this podcast years ago about does the actions of the creator affect our interpretation of the creator's art long after the creators made the art. So the Mel Gibson was the biggest thing we talked about back in the day. Mel Gibson made Braveheart, absolutely one of my favorite movies, a yeah. uh, masterpiece. 
And then later on, you find out he's a kind of a Jew hating guy, you know? Yeah, and he's absolutely an anti-Semite and, and not, a woman hater, probably not a, too. Not yeah. a pleasant, pleasant individual. Yeah. And we talked extensively in the past about does that go back because he's so directly he's directed it, he stars in it. Does that impact our interpretation of Braveheart? And this, though, this is words are one thing and they are important and dangerous. Weinstein's actions are on a completely, they're a different scale. You yes. Know? So, and at the same time, which is not not pro or con in Weinstein's camp, at the same time, you watch Mel Gibson become the Patriot. Mm-hmm. You watch him become William Wallace. Mm-hmm. You don't watch Harvey Weinstein and Google yeah. Hunting. So it's easy. It's sort of out of sight, out of mind. But I That's think it's a really angle. important conversation because it's not like these are, even if there's another 50 stories Mm -hmm. and it's going to be it's going to be a lot more men and it's going to be a few women it's going to be everybody in hollywood we have to figure out as a consumer people as a consumer culture Mm -hmm. what we do with that because we can't simply put all those things down and never and never come back to them right because that's not how our art history works that's not how any art history works and my i'm going to posit that films are art to a certain degree oh sure they are of course they are we we bring with us whether or not we want to, just like every other legacy, everything that came with us. I will say this, Kevin Smith's whole career, you know, I have a lot of respect for Kevin Smith. I like him a lot. I was part of his BBS back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan. And uh, I I know, I knew the second that the Weinstein story broke, like Kevin Smith's entire career is hinged on Harvey Weinstein liking him okay. and putting up with him okay, and buying clerks at and bringing it to Sundance. Mm-hmm. And I wondered what would happen because he's been, a, I mean, unless he does it himself, yeah. he's been a Miramax or Weinstein They're kind of attached at the hip from that, you know, because Smith would not have a career without Weinstein is what you're saying. Well, at least not the career we know, but probably not a significant. And maybe no, no career maybe not at, at all. all. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. So... Uh, I found this very interesting. This happened in the wake of the Weinstein thing. Uh, of course, Kevin Smith has a whole bunch of podcasts, a smodcast and whatnot. And he, on his Hollywood Babylon podcast, which is a podcast about Hollywood and movie making and script writing and all that mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said this, my entire career is tied up with the man. It, forgive me. I'm going to curse a little. Okay. Yeah, that my, never happens on this show. <laughs> it never happens in a Kevin Smith property. No, not at all. My entire career is tied up with that with a man. It's been a weird fucking week. I just wanted to make some fucking movies. That's it. No fucking movie is worth all of this. Like my entire career. Fuck it. Take it. Mm. It's wrapped up in something that's really fucking horrible, said the filmmaker. I know it's not my fault, but I sure didn't fucking help. I sat out there talking about this man like he was a hero, like he was my friend, like he was my father, shit like that. Mm -hmm. Smith also expressed his shame on Twitter following the October 5th New York Times expose on Weinstein. So what he decided to do as a result of that is donate all of his future proceeds from any movie that he made with the Weinstein Company or Miramax to Women in Film, hmm. which is an advocacy group, obviously, okay. for women in the okay. industry. And that's a pretty huge step. Those, you know, there's, Yeah, there's, that's not a, considering his film um, list, that is not a small sum. When you, if he's going to do that from here on out... Those movies will continue to bring in some form of money, particularly right. streaming, for the next 30 or 40, 50, his rest of his life. Yeah. Um, so he is donating all the residuals going forward from his Miramax and Weinstein Company produced canon to the nonprofit Women in Film. Per their mission statement, Women in Film advocates for and advances the careers of women working in the screen industry to achieve parity and transform the culture. Mm-hmm. 
The organization monitors motion picture industry statistics in regards to the low number of women employed as directors, writers, producers, and other below-the-line roles. So I think, you know, I I don't... I'm certainly not going to begrudge anybody if they can no longer watch a Weinstein Company movie or a Kevin Smith movie that has nothing to do with the Weinsteins, like Red State. I, I feel like it's not that... But it's such a broad, that's such a broad stroke to be like, I'm not going to watch anything that man had anything to do with ever. We've talked about this on this podcast, Story Smack before, you know, that it's not just, he isn't the only person involved with this movie. There are hundreds or thousands of creators involved in making every piece of art. But that's still a personal decision one has to make. Me personally, I feel like I, I I would have to walk away from movies as a medium that I enjoy. Mm -hmm to get away from the taint of abuse. It just doesn't have, it's not going to happen that right, way. Right. And I could walk away and there's nothing wrong with that. I have, I have more books that I want to read that I will read before I die. If I live to be 500, mm-hmm. right. I'll, I, I don't watch a lot of TV cause I just can't invest that kind of time. But if I didn't have movies, maybe I could. Mm-hmm. That said, also walking away from movies, one isn't practical for my job. Right. And two means that m- me, I've, I, I believe I have a, a, good heart and a good mind and a good attitude about whether or not it's okay to sexually harass someone again with or harass someone, which means by definition without their consent. I don't believe that it is. And if I'm walking away, I'm walking away. And I think that it might be better to continue a conversation and have good hearts and good minds and good voices in there as well. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to begrudge anybody if they're like, yep, I can't do this. I just can't. You know, I just don't think that that's, it's a, a few years ago, and this is not like you said, putting one's hands on someone is quite a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a handful of years ago, there was the whole net neutrality discussion and everybody lambasted Paramount and GoDaddy. And GoDaddy still gets the brunt of being a shitty, shitty company for that. Mm-hmm. And that list is like 400 companies long. Yeah, GoDaddy it's not just was an Paramount. easy target. Yeah, and Paramount was an easy target. But it's United Artists. It's, it's a million movie-making companies. Yeah. It's many net companies. And yet... Everybody feels good about themselves. And so, and I don't mean to say this is slacktivism at all. You make the choice that's right for you. But saying, nope, not going to work with GoDaddy. I'm like, okay. okay. But please was... never see, you know, and this, you know, and, and again, I am not comparing them or, or contrasting them or minimizing the significance of the right. physicality. Right. But it's the same thing. As people saying like, there's no GMO, GMO in our banana smoothie. Like, oh, honey, your banana is GMO. So you're saying, you're saying that the... The sausage is always complex with a lot of parts, and some of them we might not want to know are in there, but they're in there. And you, can you walk away from sausage altogether? Right. And the, yes, I could walk away from sausage altogether if I chose to. I would respect anybody who, someone to make that decision for themselves. I am not going to make force my choice on somebody else. Right. And there's there's some there's some um, fallout from this for the two guys whose movie. Uh, their careers that were launched by this movie and some in the last 20 years, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon have made other movies with the wine scenes. And the question has come up, how much did they know about what was going on and did they continue to keep their mouth shut? And we'll see if that has any long-term ramifications career. I don't think that it will. Um, You know, I, unfortunately I don't think that's something that's as much on people's radar as it should be. Did you know this shit was happening? And did you say absolutely nothing about it? That's the second layer. And there's enough first layer of the people who are actually doing this awful shit they're like, it's every day, every week we're seeing somebody else get booted out of Hollywood for this thing. So yeah. it's pretty severe, but 
Regardless of how this movie got made or who made it, it absolutely launched the careers of those two who would become major, major A-list actors, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and it brought Robin Williams an Academy Award. So overall, it's an amazing success story. And it's really, it's like I said, it's a Hollywood fairy tale come true. Yeah. And we had this discussion. We, we watched it recently again, so we could do this story smack and we had a similar maybe higher level discussion of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we'd both sort of forgotten how, just how good it really was. Yes. Yes. I mean, the thing that jumped out at me for the one thing that surprised me about this movie, having watched it, I'm, I'm sure I've watched it five times, but mm-hmm. it was a long time ago. I was kind of blown away with Minnie Driver's performance in this. Um, her character, you know, is a hetero boy, hetero nerd boy's dream date. She's, mm-hmm. she's smart. She's funny. She's caring. She's, she's delightful. laid back. She's laid back. She rolls the punch. She's delightful to be around. And that scene when uh, Matt Damon's character just breaks his, breaks her heart and says, I, yeah, I, I don't love you. I'm not going to lie. You know, watching her reaction, I was teared up a little and I was a little bit surprised at watching how, how, how clearly she showed what it feels like to be dumped, to have your heart yeah. absolutely shattered. Uh, so that, I mean, is everybody's very good in this film. It totally surprised me because I'd forgotten about that performance. Yeah. And I, I think maybe my high point is probably the scenes in the shrink's office with between Robin Williams mm-hmm. and Matt Damon. I think they're really powerful. I think the entire script was scrutinized so super heavily throughout its production and just got tighter and tighter and very clearly Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are brilliant screenwriters Mm. and Ben Affleck goes on to prove himself over and over and over again that he is good at movies, right? Mm -hmm. Argo is spectacular. He just a pretty face. Yeah. He's really, really good at, at the behind the camera sorts of pieces, I think. But, um, so they had a lot of time to tighten it up, but I also think it was very well crafted. And, and as a person who has been through therapy and has benefited myself from therapy and had, you know, everybody has baggage from childhood and I'm no different. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Mean, maybe not you, but everybody else. Has oh baggage no, I just, I mean, um, you know, we've talked about, I've talked about this in the show. I went to uh, therapy for my ADD and my, my lack of ability to focus and right. my anger, constant anger and frustration, which I'm still working on to the same. I'm a, I'm a tiny little angry man. <laughs> I have so much anger. I can't even keep hair in my head. That's how angry I am. <laughs> and uh, I went for therapy for, to, to better figure out how to manage my personal attitudes about work and how to get more work done. Yeah. And that helped a lot. But there were other yeah. things that came into that. In addition to just, I want to learn to be a more efficient worker. Right. Exactly. Emotional stuff came in big time. And that is the charming part of a lot of this for me, the movie, for me, those moments between, and I'm not even talking about the really, the, the tear jerking moment. Like it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not yes. your fault moment. Yes. Uh, even though that's quite powerful. It's the interplay between the two that was so, yeah. so great. Yeah. And for me, Robin Williams going up against uh, uh, Sarsgaard. Uh-huh. Um, to say, yeah, it doesn't, you can take him away right now. You can get him that job if you want, Mm -hmm. but I don't care about that. I care about him. Mm -hmm. It's a hard thing to do. And that is such a, oh, so also spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, we're going to talk, we're about to go into every detail of this film. So if you haven't seen it yet, or you want to refresh yourself on it before we dive into it, now's the time to pause, go watch a flick. We also spoiled a whole bunch of things already. Sorry about that. We did, but yes, we did. But that moment um, for me when, is it Soren Sarsgaard? I can't remember, but yeah. Um, Says, sorry, I was just trying to be nice to you. He's downtown at a meeting right now, mm-hmm. getting a job, getting a, you know, defense security job, whatever. 
Uh, and Robin Williams, who has had, Robin Williams' character has had so much loss in his life. And as we know now, speaking of the, the character or the person behind the character, mm -hmm. Robin Williams had a huge amount of demons in his life as sure, well. Sure, sure. And um, he, his reaction was not defensiveness, was not anger. It was, and it wasn't even like heartbrokenness. He just was like. Let's see how that works out for you. We're just going to see how that works out in general, because mm -hmm. if he actually, went, I mean, and, and you almost can see, okay, if you say he's down, downtown, okay, we'll see how that goes. And then of course the next scene is he has sent, uh, uh, his consigliere, he has sent Ben Affleck <laughs> in two short, two <laughs> tight short pants, pants. <laughs> to, the, to the meeting. Retainer. That's a great yeah. scene. Uh, all right, we'll get into this, but uh, the Sarsgaard, from a writing perspective, that was one of the, the sometimes I watch a movie, read a book, I see an angle, a character angle, a plot line, and I recognize it. I'm like, okay, well, they're doing this here, and I understand the structure here, and I, I can immediately see where this is going. Occasionally, I will see something and go, fuck, I wish I had thought of that. That is, to me, that is my benchmark for how I really get into some things. I look at it and go, I would have never thought of that, and I wish I would have. And that scene, the, the whole plot line with Sarsgaard, where he is the, he's the Fields Medal winner. He's mm -hmm. the math genius. And he immediately recognizes that as good as he is, he will never even be in the ballpark of Matt Damon and then trying to help someone who is clearly his intellectual superior and is emo and emotionally unstructured, but watching Sarsgaard's performance of that, that, and that was all, that was all written in the script. Now there may have been some tweaking during the shooting, but that was just a really smart thing. We're going to take the smartest person in this film and make him feel stupid simply because this kid got the right genetic combination. Well, and I think it's a little more than stupid. Yeah. He's wistful and melancholy too, because he knows that even though Matt Damon's character, Will Hunting, has more raw brain power for this high-level math, mm -hmm. he also knows with absolute certainty, he's absolutely right. Matt Damon is, is a flawed, fucked up character sure. that Will Hunting is flawed and fucked up and in a lot of trouble and has absolutely no emotional maturity. And so then he has to go back and be emotionally supportive and mature, which is the hardest thing to do when you're hurt, you know, and he's like hurt and he knows it's not Will Hunting's fault. Mm -hmm. And yet he's still showing up every day and saying like, yeah, sure. Okay. Let's do this. You're so much smart. You're so much smarter than me. And then doesn't say the part where he says, but you can't do this on your own unless you emotionally, emotionally right, mature. Right. So we'll, we'll jump right into it. Um, again, written by Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, about five minutes in the movie, we see Matt Damon as a janitor. This is already his second appearance as a character and there's still no dialogue. Uh, and at 622, I've never looked this up. I was going to look this up and I forgot to, we see the equation on the chalkboard. Is, do you know, is that a real equation or is that just some random bullshit they threw up on a, on a board? Uh, I don't know, but I would assume that it's real. Well, fancy, fancy people. I mean, that would make sense because somebody would have called them out on it by now. Yes. And then you've got the first, like most movies, the first nine to 11 minutes, you know, you want to get your hooks in. Wanna, here's our main character. You don't get to know everything about him or her, but we know we need to care about this person. We're seeing something. And then we get to what is the, what is this impetus event that drives us through the whole thing? And it's him at seven minutes in, uh, solving the equation on the chalkboard. Yeah. And which I, is then an unsolvable equation, which is then unsolvable. And it's, I, the cinematography of this right off the bat, and we don't know if this was in the screenplay or this was the direct Gus Van Sant, the director, but it's this major, major quest type 
trophy for all of these kids in the, these mostly rich kids in this high level school, Harvard, Harvard. And then they, they, sh- the shot is down the long hall mm-hmm. and we don't have close ups of Matt Damon solving this thing. Matt Damon is in the back, the mid to mid to background and he is visually small mm-hmm. with the whole surroundings of this school. And it's just an absolutely brilliantly composed shot. Cause as good yeah. as he is, as smart as he is, he, at this point, he's nothing. He's a, he does not matter in the context of Harvard. Well, right. At, well, technically, at that point, he's all of us, right? He's right. all of us about to embark on something scary and dangerous. And mm-hmm. I really love that shot as well. It's funny that we both wrote that down because in that very long shot, it's I'm, I'm pretty sure that's a real hallway that exists really sure, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's still perfectly uh, sort of... You, it, it, it very well captures the spirit of discovery that every one of us, that we've all had that moment. It's the the moment you're getting on the elevator to go to the job interview for the job you really, really, really want. You're in mm-hmm. the elevator alone and you go like, and then you get that pit of your stomach feeling like, oh God, oh God, press, press L, press L. I'm just going home. I'm just going home. Like that moment. And yeah. he kind of circles around and comes up to it. And you're right. He's right in the middle of the shot. He's real small. There's also... Um, overhead fluorescent lights all the way down that hallway, like would be in any institution. Uh But from that very long shot, it's this up at the top, there's all this white light. And all he's got to do is keep moving towards the white light. And he gets further and further, closer and closer to the camera. And then he circles off. And of course the blackboard is on the wall. So he circles off to the side and we get that one moment of discovery where it's going to be hard and it's going to suck, but he just has to do it if he's going to be himself. And then... It goes into his own head and he's writing on the chalkboard. I love it. And I, you and I have a slightly different take on that. Um, you, you, of course, the eternal optimist. You save a tiny black heart. Not true. <laughs> um, I saw that as a scene and whether I'm reading into this in our current uh, political and economic and class structure or not, or it was intended, what I saw was a scene which was saying, you're smarter than all the people here but you don't belong here. You're not important because you're not from the right family. You're not from the right socioeconomic status. doesn't matter how smart you are. You don't matter. That's what I saw out of that scene. That's oh, why they made him, that's why they made him so tiny. When, so when he starts out the movie, but he's, he's all tiny. by himself in that scene. Yeah. It's the, the, the weight, the, the visual space is taken up. It's so interesting that you see that. Cause for, for us, when, we're all the hero of our own story all the time. And when we're alone and by ourselves is the moment that we know we're right and everybody else is wrong. That's why I think they made him so small and made the, the, uh, the school uh, so big. Um, then we go through. Well, then that right from there, yeah. uh, there's that moment where you, we get a breakaway back to Southie, yep. to South Boston, where mm-hmm. you get to really know who Will currently is. Right. He gets, finally starts talking. Yeah, he finally starts talking and he's with, and he's in his comfort zone. He's back in South. He's got the big accent, the big teeth. And, you know, this is Goodwill Hunting, right? It's 97. Right. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, my favorite thing about people who become huge movie stars, they both have bad teeth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever. They both have not you know, perfect teeth. Not perfect. Yeah, that's what I mean. They don't have the teeth they have today. Yes. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they're still, you know, and Affleck has that giant, giant hair. And <laughs> everybody's in a tracksuit. Yeah. Casey great. Affleck is kind of, kind of greasy and curly and every, you know, yeah. and it's, it's this great shot. Like everybody has, again, everybody has a moment like that in their life where they're with their good friends. Mm-hmm. They're letting it all hang out, you know. They're laughing until they snot comes out of their nose and they fart. 
And their friends love right, it. Right. That's that moment. And we see it juxtaposed with this moment where he's on the precipice, potentially moving into a new world, we know part of his somewhere. world. Yeah. In 11 minutes, 30, 11 minutes, 30 seconds. And we get uh, the fight scene when uh, <laughs> it's great. When Matt Damon gets fired up for a slight that was done to him in his past. When he beats the living crap out of a guy. Hey, remember me? We went to kindergarten together. <laughs> Boom. Fight's on. Your and favorite part like, of the movie. <laughs> we, we're going to fight because he roughed me up in kindergarten. And now I'm 24. Awesome. Super fun. Um, 13 minutes in, we're seeing more Skarsgård and the mystery of who solved the equation. And that's what I, and this, this isn't brilliant by any stretch. I'm sure a thousand people have mentioned this, but that's when I realized, uh, going back to the fairy tale concept of the movie being made, the movie itself is a fairy tale too. This is a retelling of Cinderella. Yeah. Except the glass slipper is his brain. The glass slipper is his mutant ability to do math. But it's basically, look at this, it's Cinderella with more kindergarten fights. But it's, it's it, you know, you take this poverty-stricken person out of, uh, uh, that gets plucked out of where they are born, where they belong, and put into a completely different realm full of power and money and clothes and riches or, or whatever. And he's on his way. Cinderella story is this equation. Yeah, well, and I think also there's, um, th- th- this is the moment also where, from a storytelling perspective, which I've learned from you, mm-hmm. I, I these pieces used to be a little more invisible to me, and I'm happy to have them more visible. Um, this is the time lock. This is the the reason the story has to be told quickly, mm-hmm. because he has to stay either working with Stellan Skarsgård, Stars Skarsgård, easy for me to say, mm-hmm. and seeing a shrink, or he goes to jail, yeah, and there's no the, option. The jail is the option lock, Correct. and there's that um, there's that court scene where the where the judge is like, yeah, you're a brilliant and uh-huh. you're a fucking idiot is essentially <laughs> what happens. He's like, yep, you argued this really successfully. You argued this really successfully. You're clearly brilliant. You're also in my court and you're going to jail unless you do this. You also punched a cop. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so I love that, that, um, that me being able to see that is only since I've been working with you. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so that does, that limits both the time and an option lock. He has only one choice and a certain amount of time to do it in that drives the movie. Get to 20 minutes. One of my all time favorite scenes <laughs> of any movie ever is the scene which continues to slowly reveals Will's, Will's genius. And we get to see the perspective of the working class kids humiliating the rich boy who is trying to humiliate the working class kids. When yep. this guy comes out and says, oh, you're pretending to be to Ben Affleck, you're pretending to be in what, which math class, which history class was mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And then um, Matt Damon comes up and just humiliate, absolutely humiliates the guy in front of everybody. And then you got Casey Affleck's like, my boy's wicked smart. Wicked smart. Wicked smart. <laughs> That's what I want people to say about me someday. My boy's wicked smart. <laughs> uh and then I jump up to uh, 20. You got anything else there? Yeah, that particular scene also shows it's such an interesting thing because the most important thing that happens in that scene happens without the, without many driver. I mean, many drivers in the background there, but mm-hmm. the most important thing is she becomes impressed with Will because Will never punches down. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely tearing that blonde kid apart. It's totally making a mockery of, oh, did you read that last week in your poli sci class? Okay, right, well, next right. week you're going to change your mind because you're going to read this. Oh, uh, yeah. And he, But he never punches down. He never insults his hair. He never takes a pot shot. He never mm. does any of that. And mm. from the girls in the background, the women in the background, Minnie Driver and her girlfriend are pretty much always watching Will. Right there. Yeah, they're yeah right and they, there. It's, but, they're, but they could be watching the whole thing. They could be trying to stop it. But that, I think, is... You know, that's their meat cute, which wasn't all that cute, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, you learn a little bit more about Minnie Driver's character when she comes up at the end and says, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. I've been waiting all night for you to come talk to me. Yes. Yeah. Which is, so if, if we, in spite of his clear mathematical intelligence, his emotional intelligence, and the ability to read a room properly and see when a pretty girl's looking at him, he's not so good at that. And he gets a little coaching on that as, as time goes on. Uh, he... he at 28 minutes, he's out of jail under Scar- Sarsgaard's, guards. what is it called? Tutelage. Uh, tutel- tutelage, or um, I forget the actual term, but he's under his supervision. He's mm-hmm. respons- Skarsgård is responsible for him. And then we start to watch him run circles around his therapist. And as usual, this character runs circles around everybody because of his mental horsepower. And he's just making a mockery of these therapists that he has to go see until he meets... Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah, this is an interesting moment because it's the moment you realize that uh, Will Hunting is an autodidact and Will ca- can be book smart about probably and an anything. autodidact is someone who's a genius at many, instantly picks up many different things. He's able to right? teach himself, right? Is teach able himself. to teach himself. Autodidact, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and not just teach himself the information, but teach himself the ration, rational uh, thought behind the mm-hmm. information. Okay. Um, which is interesting because... One of the things that's missing, and I don't mean to say autodidacts are non-emotional people, but the things that are missing there are, is emotional. You can't, you can't, you can't teach yourself how your mother feels about you. You can't teach yourself how your classmates feel about you. You can't, you can objectively take information, but you can't sort of uh, assimilate all that information and, and act in kind. So mm-hmm. it's interesting because you see him become really, he's a lot more brilliant than just this math stuff. Yeah, it's not just the math stuff. Yeah. Uh, and also emotionally fairly stunted. And the initial scenes with him and Robin Williams, uh, Robin Williams is a professor at a community college. So smart, but not Harvard smart, so to speak. So we think, 
Um, and it's a different group of kids we've seen so far. We've seen the rich, smart kids, and now we see more of the more of the dirty butt kids, the kids I went to high school with there at the community college. Um, is this before or after Dead Poet Society? Do you, do you know? I think this is after Dead after? Poet Society, yep. And then we watched the initial scene between Matt Damon and Robin Williams, and Matt Damon starts to try, Will Hunting starts to try and run circles around him, as he's always done, challenges Robin Williams on a couple different things. And here's one of the things, one of the other things I like about this uh, screenplay is I can almost see Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in a room together, 22 and 23, somewhere in that ballpark and just ripping on the screenplay over and over again. Cause there's really subtle stuff that comes up. And when I go over a screenplay, I'm writing for the fourth or fifth time and things start to gel. You start to put in these tiny little cues. The biggest one I see is they set up, there's a scene where Robin Williams grabs him by the throat Right. And, and we've already established that will, although he's not the biggest guy in the world, he is a physically violently oriented person. He's got a huge rap sheet. We watch him get into the fight. Uh, we watch him beat the, beat the rap because he's responds to everything violent. We watch a judge give up on him because he's so violent. And there's this real subtle line when, uh, Robin Williams says, Matt Damon's like, do you work out? Yeah, I work out. Oh, Matt Damon challenged me. Oh, what do you bench? And then Robin Williams says 285. How about you? And you can see, Ben or uh, Matt Damon's acting ability right there. There's just one little look in his face. Like, Oh, I tried that. That backfired on me. He benches way more than I do, but it's also, so it's simultaneously it's establishing their character rapport and, and, and watching the probing going on. And then it pays off later on when Robin Williams grabs him by the throat. And you Mm -hmm. know, you've already been set up in the script that Robin Williams is completely physically dominant to this kid. And it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, yeah. subtle foreshadowing. Well, and it also, you know, we learn from uh, Robin Williams' character's name is Sean, and he ha- was college roommates with Stellan Skarsgård, who's Lambo. And mm-hmm. they have a meeting to talk about Will early on before Sean and Will meet. And you, we learn, the audience learns, Sean is from Southie. Sean's a local boy done good. Mm-hmm. Sean did a lot of the same things that Will does. He walks away from more prestigious jobs and more prestige because he had to see about a girl, you yeah. know? Yep. And that is such crafty storytelling from the screenwriter point of view. But it also, in that same scene, factors in because all of a sudden he's like, okay. So Will doesn't know, oh, I grew up in Southie too. They might've talked about it, but all of a sudden, Rob, uh, Sean is that guy, is Will hunting. He's right. smart. Mm-hmm. He's hot-headed. Yes. He can fly off the handle. Yep. He's fucking powerful. Yep. And he does not give a shit. Yeah, he's Once not. Once he gets it in his head, <laughs> he right. does not give a does shit. Does not give a shit. And all of a sudden, not only does Will say like, okay, that totally backfired, like you say, which he totally does. Yeah. And he has nothing to say in that moment. He doesn't respond sassily. He doesn't respond humbly. He doesn't say anything. He just automatically switches to the next thing. How do I, where's the cracks? And he's, there's a few moments where they're looking at each other and, and Sean has his hands around Will's throat. Yep. And then, and that's all there is to say, because in that moment, Sean, Sean has more development. He's probably not as smart as Will, but he's emotionally he's way smart. smarter. And yeah. that scene is also set up really well. If you guys go back and watch it, um, we watch as we head into that choking scene, we watch Will Hunting trying to find the cracks in Robin Williams' character. He's like, I can, I know I can control this guy. I just got to figure out what his weakness is. And then Will Hunting goes down the wrong path. 
which mm-hmm. is insinuating maybe you married the wrong girl. And you can see Rob and, and Robin Williams absolutely deserved the Oscar for oh, this did. role. Cause you can watch Robin Williams being like, you can almost see him mentally calculating. You got 10 seconds to stop being a dick. You got nine seconds to stop being a dick. You got eight, five seconds. Okay. It's too late. And you watch Robin Williams as it's going on very subtly as he's talking, take off his glasses, fold them up, calmly set them on the desk. Cause he already knows he already knows there's going to be physical, there's going to be a physical encounter. Raleigh Williams isn't upset, doesn't lose his temper, just takes off his glasses. And that's where you get this exact, that's where they're, they're mirrors. Like when Matt Damon's character is driving in the car, like go back, there's that guy. He's not yelling. He's not screaming. He's not spitting, mm-hmm. frothing at the mouth. Go back. We're going to beat the shit out of that guy. They're yeah. very same characters as you pointed out. Yeah. And there's so many, um, really lovely nuances. I, you know, obviously we, we've talked on this podcast about the perfect screenplay and mm-hmm. that is a generational thing. There, there, that changes with the times, but there are so many nuances here that are lovely that in that you just mentioned it, that scene where he's like, wait, 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 back up. There's that kid who beat me up in kindergarten, mm-hmm. his ride or die buddies turn the car around. Damn. And literally, uh, uh, Chucky, who's played by ben, ben Affleck says to Morgan, who's Casey Affleck, uh-huh. his younger brother in real life. Um, Casey Morgan doesn't want to get out of the car. He doesn't want to get in trouble again. He doesn't want to go back to jail again. He can, he says all that. And those are all legitimate, rational, thoughtful things to do at that moment. Like that right. kid beat you up 15 years ago. Fuck him. Right. I'm not going to jail. I'm not doing this again. And then Chucky turns around and says, if you're not out of this car, you're next. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's, Cause those, that's all you, that's all those four kids have and have other. had forever is each other. Right. And then late, just, just after that, that throttling scene, you know, or maybe it's in the next session, he sort of says like, yeah, sure. Chucky would walk into traffic for you. Right. That's not what I'm talking about. Yes. Not talking about that kind of relationship. Which then sets up for the third act, Chucky saying the best part of my day is that 10 seconds after I ring your doorbell, well, I think you might not be there. Ugh. Ooh. Right. It's, it's so, so powerful. Hard. And that's, that's built the minute they get out of that car and he turns around and says to Morgan, you get out of that car, yep. you're fucking next. Yep. Uh, that all builds super slowly under the, under the sort of miasma of the big picture thing that's going on in Will's life. Yes. And it's brilliant, I think. And those are, I think those are more of the real subtle things that came from writing, rewriting, reading, wait a minute, what if I try this? Wait a minute, what if I try this? And I, it, we'll never know how much of that was in the original screenplay and how much of it came later. Quick, uh, quick timeout. How about a round of applause for Cole Hauser in this? He's a <laughs> Mr. Cole Hauser, who's been good in everything I've ever seen him in, but he's the subtle car mechanic guy. Right. Doesn't have a lot of lines, but he's uh, he's that rock solid, quiet guy in every group of boys. There's that quiet badass. Yeah. Well, and the one who, you know, like after Will goes to see about a girl, uh-huh. he's probably never coming back to Southie. Right. Chucky, when he gets in Morgan, when they get arrested for the 95th time, Cole Hauser's character is going to be like, all right, let me get the car for my wife. I'll come get you. Yeah, like he's you. that I'll guy. He's like not. You can sleep on my couch for a while. Right. He's not as hot headed, but he's still <laughs> ride or die. That kind of thing. Um, then we have the breakthrough between Will and Matt Damon. Will tells a cliche joke because he really hasn't uh, told anything before about, you know, the, the airplane joke. Mm-hmm. Why don't you no Wait, honey, he has to go to the bathroom first, which is a, a cliche joke. I thought that was more subtlety because that's a joke. If you're, 25 or older, you've heard that joke. It's novel to Matt Damon. Robin Williams has heard it before. Robin Williams lets him tell the joke. And then Robin Williams um, then gets a laugh out of Will by saying how his wife would fart in her sleep mm-hmm. so loud to wake her up. And then Robin Williams would take the blame for it mm-hmm. so as not to disturb her. And there's a lot of, a lot of sweetness going in there. Um, and then we ju- that's about an hour in. 
hour and 10 minutes in, we get Minnie meeting his friends, Minnie Driver. Minnie, do you remember her character's name? I don't remember her character's name. No. But she meets it. the boys. She gets to meet the boys. And she just, again, is the girlfriend everybody dreams of having because she's awesome with the friends. She's Skyla. Skyla. Hey, Skyla, tell that joke again, Skyla. And it's, it's, it could not possibly go better. And it's a weird thing for Matt Damon's character. But like, yeah, this is... This is a dude's dream. I've got these great buddies. I got this great girl. I'm going to get them together. And I just know it's going to go. I know it's going to go shitty. She's not going to like them. They're not going to like her. Doesn't happen. Everybody's winning. She's still uh, the best girlfriend ever. Well, and she ends up telling a particularly in, in South Boston, in terribly, terribly Irish Boston, she's an English girl telling yep. an Irish joke. And, <laughs> and that's another, like, that's a sort of a daring moment, even though it's kind of a late, it doesn't, they don't have to be Irishmen there. That's not the point of the joke. Yeah. That's how she's telling it. So you, you know, you see people, you see them around the table kind of getting it like, okay, I'm listening. And, you know, I don't think it's all highly evolved. Not every single moment of every single movie is super highly evolved, but I do see a little like, Okay, hopefully this pays off. <laughs> you know, it's going somewhere. Yeah, and then uh, it does. I thought it was it was fun for me because uh, a girl told that exact same joke when I was in college. Uh, it was a very similar situation. She told that same joke with the same punchline, and everything. So I was like, uh, Guinness? Did she? Was she? Did she take a sip of Guinness? Yeah, sip of Guinness. Like and she had, she had set it up by taking multiple sips of Guinness through the joke. And sure, subtle, sure. subtle. I wish I could remember who the hell that was, but it was very funny. Let's call her Skyler for now. Skyler. And at uh, hour sixteen minutes, they try and even though we've, it's established how smart this kid is, they try and up-level it even further when Sarsgaard's comparing Will, Will Hunting to Einstein and Jonas Salk. Like, we're talking genius, gen, double genius, triple genius level. It's that important that this kid gets on. Um, then we get to mini, the mini-driver breakup scene, which you talked about earlier, yeah. which is just devastating and so well done. Yeah, there's a few devastating moments in this movie. Yeah. Not too much. There's the, I, I find the um, the... Uh, the moment this that moment is great because she's mm. she also has nothing to say. She knows Oof. she knows he cares for her. He know she knows that, but he's going. But she says you have to you have to say it. You have to own it. You have to be that. You have to yeah. own what you are. And he if you turns don't let down. me step up and say you don't love me, and right. he does. Mm -hmm. And she knows that that's not true, but there's nothing you can do about it. And I also love the um, obviously I love 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 the Chucky scene. Which like, scene is that? Where they're at the construction site. Oh, yeah. And he's yeah. like, yeah, we're going to be do this, get a couple of kids. We're going to pick our kids up from school, take them to soccer, all that <laughs> other stuff. And Chucky is all, he says, don't uh, take this the wrong way. Yeah. I wrote down that quote because it Go was ahead. so powerful. You're sitting on a winning lottery ticket. You're too much of a pussy to cash it in. And like, you know, Chucky's like, I love you. I want to, you're my boy. But like you said, well, it's, he starts out by saying, don't take this the wrong way. But if that's actually how we are 20 years from now, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, and, but that's the, and it's funny because, you know, people, it's easy to pick on pretty boy Ben Affleck sure. as, as he, he's a movie star because he's gorgeous because he's a movie star because he's fucking gorgeous. Mm -hmm. He's also an Oscar winning winning screenwriter because he's talented and right. he's an Oscar winning director and producer because he's talented Yes, and he's a great actor. And if you don't think he's a great actor, watch uh, the super early films. This one is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, Chasing Amy is, Chasing I think Amy's he has good. a beautiful, beautiful scene in Chasing Amy, which shows a lot of raw talent. And then watch Hollywoodland. And, uh, and I don't think i Hollywoodland. Hollywoodland and Argo. And Argo, he directs himself, which means you have to, you have to know what you're doing if yeah. that's going to be viable. Ben catches a lot of that same shit that Brad Pitt catches. Right. You're just, you're just so, so good looking. You can't possibly be good at all these other things too. And they yeah. are. And, uh, and in this case, yeah, he's, a, and he's, and he works real, or, 
at least in his career and his film, filmography has done that. But mm-hmm. he has this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous moment where he's really vulnerable and says that, the, that thing I already mentioned, that but the best 10 seconds of every day yeah, is when I ring the doorbell and it, I think you might not answer because you yeah. might be gone. Which they pay off at the end. Of when course, he goes which up. is super movie making, yes. lovely, cliche BS, but there's it's great. Lo- there's, there's excellent use of the formulas that we have come to expect. And that's one of them. When Ben Affleck's character goes and knocks on the door and there's nobody there and he gets that little smile, he goes up to hang out with his boys. And then there's like this sort of montage of a few really, really nice notes right back and forth there where Ben has already gone off to see about a girl mm-hmm. and stops and leaves a note. Uh, in Robin Williams' mailbox, in Sean's mm-hmm. mailbox, that all it says is, I've gone to see about a girl. Yeah. And Sean already knows that Skyler's gone to- Yeah. jerker. Skyler's gone to Stanford and has begged, begged Ben to come, or uh, begged Will to come yeah. with. Uh-huh. And he, Sean knows that Will has turned him down and he says, Ascent, you know, essentially the, the last time they see each other is sort of get busy living or get busy dying. Right. You have, right. You have one choice. You're always going to have this head. You're always going to have this brain and it'll kill you to stay. Yeah. And yeah, go, it may kill you to go, but it'll for sure kill you to stay. And then it switches back and there's that moment with Chucky where he smiles a little and turns around and gets back in the car mm-hmm. and Morgan hops out of the front seat or hops out of the back seat. Shotgun. Because <laughs> <He laughs> if Will isn't going to be in the car, Morgan's, Morgan's going to try and usurp up. that seat, Morgan's which I love. <laughs> and, uh, and we finish up with some really strong set piece formula. We get to see Robin Williams has grown from this. So instead of being completely introverted, oh, he's going to travel again. So Robin Williams has learned from his relationship with Will Hunting and he's grown and he's moving on. And Skarsgård is moving on and, and Casey Affleck gets to be in the front seat. And then we see Will Hunting driving away into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the thing before that, though, of course, is the it's not it's not my favorite scene in this in the movie, but it's pretty solid. The, the it's not your fault. Mm. Oof. And then you get to see Matt yeah, Damon really, really, yeah. really turn on the acting horsepower in that one and just completely expose himself emotionally. Oof, it's tough. It's hard to see a dude cry in movies. It's really it t- like once he's been established as one of the boys, the ride or die boy will fight with you. You see him break down like that. It's like, whew, it's tough. Yeah. For me, there that is akin to uh, seeing truly seeing a girl get beat up. We don't see okay. a lot you of that, see, right? Yeah. So it's hard. I, I think I mentioned hard. this the other day. I forget we were in LA talking with friends, I think. And I said, there's a, when in true romance, when Patricia Arquette, the, the, the heavies come in to try and find the money, Mm -hmm. which Patricia Arquette doesn't have. She knows it's going to go terribly badly and she just gets beat to holy hell and she goes down swinging. Mm -hmm. That's so rare because our culture tells us you don't hit a girl. There's a million girls who have been hit by other girls, by men and a million girls who picked that fight. You know, sure. and that's the way it is. And likewise, our society tells us that boys shouldn't cry. Correct. And, <laughs> and then there's that moment when it's, you're in for penny, in for pound for right. that character. And right. you're like, oh, dog, I feel you. That's very, that's. Very, yeah. He's become you. one of your bros through the, through, uh, vicariously through the movie. And then comes a moment when your bro breaks down and we're just some dudes, not all dudes, this dude in particular and other dudes in my culture not equipped to handle that shit when our bros break down and cry we're just not we're not what we can be there for him but we're like i don't i don't know what to do but i think that's part of it i think why part of the reason that that's still so powerful because as our and i think our culture is probably shifting as as cultures do will shift among uh, over time Mm -hmm. uh part of that is you are also a very okay this is a problem how can we fix it Mm -hmm. how can i help fix it and you're very action motivated 
And there's simply nothing to be done to, to be there for that guy. Correct. There's you no, you just can't have fix to, that. You, can't you fix just it. have to sit there and let it happen. He's fixing it himself by, by crying. That is the fix. And the fix right. is so antithetical to the things that you think and know should be happening. And the way you support your bro and all that other stuff that you just are like, okay. <laughs> I, okay. I'm just going to watch this for a little bit. I'm going to give a little, let's, uh, let's, let's hug it out. Does anybody have a tissue? <laughs> and then, My boy then needs a tissue. We know the movie is done because the car literally drives off into the sunset and we get piccolo music. And as we all know, <laughs> piccolo music is the sound of self-actualization and character arc resolution. I didn't realize It is a that. fact. That is a known fact in Hollywood. Just like option lock and time lock, once you have piccolo music, you are, uh, you know, you know, things are, things are going to go a certain way. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because I think uh, that's a, uh, that closing scene was probably in the screenplay written as is, but is a very, very stereotypically Gus Van Zandt scene. Okay. Okay. Um, not a huge connoisseur. I don't dislike his movies. I just don't think I've watched a lot, but, um, such a great movie, such a great success story. Um, let's see. Oh, Hey, Oh, by the way, a uh -uh. speaking of great stories. Oh Lord. Yes. Oh Lord. Uh, speaking of great stories. Do you have, um, Things I might not know. I was hoping you might be able to pick up on my cue, okay, my dangling segue cue. Yes, I am a journalist, ma'am. I'm a trained, degreed journalist. I so, have come um, prepared. How many things that I might not, we might not know do you have, have lined up? 14, courtesy of our pals over at mentalfloss.com. All right, how about maybe we do eight of those? You don't want me to win. Do you not want me to win a Pulitzer for my hard-hitting journalistic <sighs> tactics? I will give you nine. Okay, sold. All right, nine is, nine is good. It's better than eight. Number one, this movie is originally about a math genius and his buddy outsmarting the government. Mm. That's how Matt Damon and Ben Affleck conceived it, the idea they'd play the leads. When the producers of Castle Rock bought the screenplay after bidding war, headhound show Rob Reiner told the writers they really had two movies here. The action comedy about a reluctant whiz kid trying not to be recruited by the CIA and a character drama about a genius and his shrink. He left it to them to decide which parts of the story would survive. So right off the bat, uh, that's great. I mean, Rob Reiner is a very powerful, powerful, talented storyteller. Powerful guy in Hollywood, talented storyteller. He's like, come here, Bobby, listen, you got two stories. And literally is such an interesting um, place for them to land at first, even though it doesn't stay there. Because Rob Reiner starts his career as an actor, mm -hmm. then becomes a director, producer, and is incredibly talented and does When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, that's right. Which is a huge, 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 huge crossover blockbuster hit. Like yeah. Everybody loves that movie. Mm -hmm. And here there are two scrappy actors want to rate a really powerful movie. And Rob Reiner's like, I got you, bro. But yeah. you wrote two movies. And it sounds like from everything we hear about the lore of the story that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are very good at listening. They're very good at taking advice from established people and incorporating that. And that's a skill. I mean, I've had to develop that. And I'm haven't had that kind of success and probably never will, but I, it's taken me a long time to be like, okay, this dude knows more than you. This woman knows more than you sit down and listen and see what you can incorporate. But number two on things you might not know, it is a mix of real Boston location and sets built in Toronto. All of the MIT interiors were shot on a Canadian soundstage. The I street tavern is real. The regulars were hugely supportive of the movie. In one peculiar instance of logistics, the exterior shots of Boston's Bunker Hill community college are real, but McGuire's office within the college is a set, a set built to look exactly like the real office at Bunker Hill Community College where Robin Williams had visited a teacher for research. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder why they couldn't just film in the... 
I, I don't know. Yeah, I do not know. Uh, number three, the park bench where we see Robin Williams and Matt Damon have their last encounter became a memorial to Robin Williams after his death. Oh, it kills me. Located in Boston's public garden, the bench where Dr. McGuire and Will have their iconic crucial scene had been a significant part of Goodwill hunting lore since the film's release. After Williams' death in 2014, it's where fans memorialized him. Mm. The great pictures online, all the chalk drawings and flowers and whatever. This is my favorite. This is my favorite one because I have not had a TV show or a movie done, but I have been asked to do rewrites on things uh, in the process. And I've been asked novels, novel editor, novel editors ask me to do rewrites on things. And sometimes a Kovacs, a real girl herself, sometimes you wonder, you keep asking me to rewrite this shit. Are you actually re reading the crap oh, that I I've invested this. time? I remember this. So this is the best one. So. For a while, the screenplay had a gay sex scene as a test to see if the studio was paying attention. Castle Rock had Damon and Affleck doing rewrite after rewrite without getting anywhere. And the duo felt like the bosses weren't even reading the new drafts. So they added a paragraph-long screen direction describing Sean and Will going at it. And nobody said anything. Until, strangely, uh, Harvey Weinstein. He saw it. He read the whole script. And, and then like, what is this? You, yeah, and, and called and said, I love it. I don't really understand that Sean Will thing, but I love it. <laughs> they probably forgot it was in there. No, they knew it was in there, but everybody, you know, well, or that, they, that's or their they, bench with their bellwether. That, that was their green oh, M&Ms. I've never heard that part of it. Yeah. That's great. Um, and then like uh, Kevin Smith obviously read it and saw it. Uh, Kevin yeah. Smith talked about having read the whole script through, um, he brought it into the bathroom and then sat on the toilet <laughs> oh, for, Kevin the, Smith. for like an hour and 20 minutes until he finished it. And then was like, I don't, you know, so people oh, saw yeah. it, people like Kevin Smith saw it, but he, they were like, yeah, we're leaving that in because fucking nobody's reading our story. Right. So Kevin Smith hands the script with that scene that Kevin knows is there and is a, is a Easter egg or whatever, okay. a, a green M&M. Hands it to Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein is like, yeah, I don't know about that part. We're going to have to talk it's about great. that more. I don't know what this scene seems out of context. And that was just it. It seemed crazy. Oh, wow. Number five, Mel Gibson almost directed this movie. Speaking, we were talking about him earlier. After Miramix bought the script from Castle Rock, the company began setting up meetings with various potential directors, including Mel Gibson, who was a hot commodity at the time because of Braveheart. Gibson was interested and he spent a few months developing the project, but ultimately he wasn't moving fast enough. Damon politely asked if he might consider stepping aside for someone who really had a passion for it, and Gibson obliged. Number six, Robin Williams chose the bar. Uh, this is fun. Once he committed to the movie, Williams wanted to get a taste of South Boston by having Affleck and Damon take him around the neighborhood. They took him to a rough dive bar called the L Street Tavern, where the colorful locals mobbed the actor and drunk guys tried to fight Affleck. Mm -hmm. Williams loved the place and insisted they just had to use it as a location, even though his character wasn't in any of the scenes that took place in that bar. And at that point had a lot more pull than... Oh, yeah. 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 I think if Ron Williams is like, hey, I want to use this scene, like, oh, we make that happen, Mr. Williams. Um, number seven, Van Zant, director, wanted Affleck's character to die. At one point in the rewriting process, after Van Zant was on board as director, he said, I want Chucky to get flattened on a construction site, crushed like a bug. He proposed this would be the climax to the movie's second act, Affleck and Damon protested, but finally wrote it. Van Zant read it and said, that was a terrible idea. I love him. It's such a great, they like, we don't, dude, it's not going to work. Booby, write it. Just write it. All right, we'll write it. Well, and you know, they could have written a terrible scene that would have read like a terrible scene. And well, instead sure they, they wrote. They a, wrote what they wanted. Yeah. Right. But I think Van Zant would have seen like, oh good, I asked you to write it because you're the screenwriters and yeah. you gave me shit dailies. Write it again. But and they didn't do that. They wrote a scene that would be potentially shootable. And then yeah. Van Zant was willing to let go of his idea. And we can see just from these things that you might not know how many times they had to go through it, how many voices were in, how many ideas came in and being able to crawl, corral all of that and put it in a, put it in the continuity of the screenplay, make it all count as important. Number eight, 
Will Hunting was maybe going to die at the end too. Damon said one of the endings he and Affleck toyed with was where quote, Carmine came back with his boys in a baseball bat to kill Will Hunting, who deep down actually wanted to be killed. This is his way of getting out. Yikes. And Carmine, I believe, was the uh, the kindergarten kindergarten bully. Hey, remember me from kindergarten? Number nine, finally. Matt Damon agrees with you that his hair is terrible. (laughs) But okay. But does Matt Damon agree with me that Ben Affleck's hair is glorious? Very jealous of it. I'm jealous of all hair, but I'm very jealous of that hair. Uh, As Matt Damon told an interviewer in 2012, quote, that that is so my fault. For whatever reason at that age, I love that haircut. Gus was like, really? Ben was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) If you look at Ben's hair in that movie, it's totally acceptable by today's standards. But no, I wanted the frosted fucking hair. I don't know what my problem was. I look like I should have been singing backup for color me bad. Oh, come on. It was the 90s. It was so good. That is nine things that you might not have known about Goodwill Hunting. And that will do it for today. We do hope that you've enjoyed episode 31 of Story Smack. You can find Scott and myself online, me online. Scott is at Scott Sigler on Twitter and on Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. You can find us online at scottsigler.com slash storiesmack, and we'd love to see your comments there. You can always find us on iTunes. Just search for Scott Sigler Audiobooks and subscribe. You'll get a free audiobook episode every Sunday in Story Smack. Not quite every week, but every weekish. Mm-hmm. FDO, what is the current audiobook? Uh, currently, we are podcasting uh, Alone, which is book three of the Generations trilogy. This coming Sunday, we will post episode number eight. The story of Em and the Birthday Children is, this is where it starts to get nutty. Alone is the third book in a trilogy, and it this whole book finishes big. We don't have a fizzle out on the series of the we Generation Trilogy. It finishes <clears throat> huge, and the shit starts to get real in this episode, episode number eight. And, oh, by the way, if you dig, you're listening, you dig A Real Girl's Voice, you should listen because she is the narrator of that book. That I am, sir. I am indeed. So that does it for episode 31 of Story Smack. Until next time, we will talk to you all real soon. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.